2: Uh, This week is a very, very special episode. I know I frequently say that, but it really is a special episode this week because we are marking an important anniversary that has just passed. Uh, This entire year has been the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. Um, And we just recently passed the anniversary of the first two and thankfully only two uses of atomic weapons in warfare, the two uh, detonations of atomic bombs by the United States in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in August of 1945. And we have with us three scholars who have been part of a larger project, uh, documenting, writing, analyzing, and in particular, most recently, collecting photographs of what occurred during these terrible bombings in August of 1945, helping us uh, 75 years later to remember, to process, to learn and hopefully to improve ourselves based on the the horrible uh, experience that these photographs depict. We're going to talk to these three scholars today. Uh, We have with us Don Carlton. Uh, He's the first of the three. He's a historian and founding director of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of at least a dozen books. That was the number I counted, but I can't count much higher than that since (laughs) I'm a historian. Uh, at least at least a dozen books, including uh, books on Walter Cronkite, on the Red Scare, uh, and most recently, in addition to this book on the atomic bombings, he's completed a dual biography of William P. Hobby and Oveta Culp Hobby, two of the most important figures in early 20th century Texas uh, history. And, and I, maybe we'll have him on in the future to talk about that book as well. Uh, we also have uh, Michael Stoff, who's a frequent visitor on our podcast, one of my favorite people, one of the truly great historians writing today, um, great teachers. Um, Michael's a professor of history and UT regents and university distinguished teaching uh, associate professor. At the university of texas at austin he's the author of what is still i think one of the best books on oil and american foreign policy and also a very prominent uh textbook writer as well as one of the uh, foremost people writing on the history of the bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki uh, welcome michael nice to have you back on thank you jeremy and then we have in addition to uh, michael and don we have ben Wright. Uh, who is a curator and researcher at the Briscoe Center? One of the most energetic users of archives, always reminding me of new archival collections I should be using, that I often try to try to keep up with Ben on. Uh, he's. Uh He's a a PhD student in history here at the University of Texas, uh, already an accomplished journalist, and served as press secretary at the Texas State Capitol. He has a master's degree from King's College, and he's originally, as you'll hear in his accent, from Leicester, England. Uh, Welcome, Ben. Nice to have you on as well.
0: Thanks for having me, Jeremy.
2: So before we turn to Don, Ben, and Michael, uh, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's poem, and, and he's written, I think, a very moving poem for us today. What is the title of your poem, Zachary? Awaiting the Apocalypse. Let's hear it. August
1: 1945, and a boy rides a bicycle around in circles on a driveway. August 6, 1945, and a plane whirs peacefully, though it is clearly an engine of war. It radios something inaudible back through the clouds. August 6, 1945, after 8 o'clock, and the boy is still spinning, around and around, entranced, staring at the ground in pain. August 6, 1945, ten minutes after 8 o'clock, and another plane flies high in circles over the city of 350,000. And still there is peace, and the guns are pulled. August 6, 1945, 14 minutes after 8 o'clock, and still the boy is rolling, turning, spinning, closer and closer, angled like he is awaiting the ground. August 6, 1945, 15 minutes after 8 o'clock, and the plane drops something. The plane drops something, and it turns back to await the apocalypse. August 6, 1945, 15 minutes and seconds after 8 o'clock, and the boy hits the ground. August 6, 1945, 15 minutes and seconds after 8 o'clock, and the little boy hits the ground. Death and the destruction of time. The clocks stop. Death, death and the destruction of time. His face hits the pavement. Death, death and the destruction of time. All are blinded for seconds. Death, death and the destruction of time. Blood pours onto the asphalt. Death, death and the destruction of time. Blood. Skin, bone, iron, ash, it is all there. Death, death, and the destruction of time.
2: Zachary, that that is indeed very moving. What is your poem uh, about? Well, of course, my poem is about
1: the uh, bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945. But it's really about uh, the immense scale of this tragedy that we really don't understand, that's very hard to grasp as someone who never experienced it.
2: Well, that gives us a a great opening to discuss uh, this new book and uh, the anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. The title of the book, of course, is Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, Japanese Photographs Documenting. The atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen the book yet, there's a fantastic article about it that we will link to in the podcast from the New York Times, which includes some of the photos. Uh, Don, how did you uh, and this august group come to uh, work on this project?
3: Well, Jeremy, uh, the Briscoe Center has been specializing for oh, several years now in creating uh, a huge archive of uh, leading American photojournalists. So um, in the, well, I guess it was about 2015 or so, um, the anti-nuclear photographers movement, uh, they had had this project where they gathered uh, something like 820 or 830 photographs scattered in different locations. Uh, Many of them never published. And they created a digital archive. They scanned all the photographs, uh, and they created this uh, archive of these photographs as evidence uh, to show people uh, what the, you know, the horrific after effects of, that, uh, of the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, they published those photographs in two books in two volumes, one on Nagasaki and one on Hiroshima in Japan. It did not have circulation outside of Japan, however, and it, it got tremendous attention in Japan. So they got the idea that they would really wanted the American people to have a chance to see these photographs because as I said, most of them had never been published or many. And uh, you know, there's only been a few photographs really that have made it to these shores of the after effects of, those, of the bombings. So they, they sought out Hank Nagashima, their associate, who speaks fluent English. And asked him if he, and he has family here in the United States, and they asked him if he would come to the United States and seek a publisher. And so, out of the clear blue sky, I got an email from Hank uh, asking if we had any interest in doing this. And so, you know, my immediate reaction was yes, uh, we do have an interest because uh, I would like to add uh, this digital uh, photography collection of these 800 or so images to our photo archive, uh, which is a very important uh, archive, and this would be a great addition. And uh, and then we could also publish a, a book. However, there were a number of questions that I had that had to be resolved before I could actually agree to do this. Uh, and the number one question in my mind is that, uh, uh, you know, I told Hank that he surely was aware that this whole uh, subject was uh, very – very sensitive in the United States in a different kind of way than the way it was in Japan. Uh, and I we, I recall the the controversy that occurred over the Smithsonian uh, Museum's uh, uh, exhibit of right. the Enola, no Enola Gay uh, in 1995 and uh, all of that problem. And so I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not shy about posting these photographs, uh, but Uh, I I need to know uh, if there is uh, the I need to know more about the organization, the anti-nuclear photographers movement. And I want to make sure that uh, this isn't some sort of extreme nationalist organization in Japan, uh, you know, in some way or or that there is some sort of uh, um, effort that, you know, some kind of an agreement that we'd have to reach where uh, we would be assigning uh, guilt, war guilt or really refighting World War II, uh, and the whole decision to drop the bomb on Japan. Uh, I wasn't interested in our getting into that because there are entire libraries full of books uh, dealing with that, all of those issues. And uh, my interest in this was really what I felt was probably going to be the same issue, interest that they had, and that is that we have, we're no longer enemies, Japan and the United States but we have a common enemy and that's nuclear war. Uh, and that's how, why we would, would be, you know, one of the reasons why we would publish this book, uh, not to refight World War II or, or uh, really re-argue uh, Harry Truman's decision to drop the bomb, uh, but instead uh, to really acquaint whole new generations of the horrors of uh, nuclear war uh, well, it turned out that's exactly what their purpose was as well. And once we got that understood, then we started moving forward with the project and we acquired the digital photographs. They're now in the center. And we immediately began the work um, trying to do the book and a major exhibit. I brought Ben Ben, um, right into the project and, and Allison Beck on our staff, who's uh, director of special projects. And the two of them uh, joined with me, and the three of us were a team uh, working on this whole thing to get this book published. So that's how this all came together. It was really a mutual interest in documenting this history uh, and, and also to maybe make a statement and to teach people uh, about what happens when you drop atomic bombs on, on, on citizens and individuals. Um, and so that's really the point of this book. It's not to refight World War II uh, or or any of that. It, it It's to look to the future, to tell you the truth. It's to use this past, this history, as a guide to the future and as a warning, really. Uh, so that's how this all got started. And uh, thankfully, we got all this done. Uh, ben and Allison and I made an expedition to Japan. I felt that it was extremely important that uh, none of us had been to Japan, and I felt like if we were going to do a book and an exhibit on this. And uh, we were actually going to have a conference as well when the book came out. But then, of course, current conditions are such where well, that couldn't happen. Uh, so we went to Japan to not become experts on Japan. I mean, a two week trip to Japan is not going to do that. But I felt like we at least needed to go there and spend time and meet with a number of people, see the, the memorial museums in both cities uh, and, and just look at the topography and, and try to understand the scene uh, and go to the shrine. So that's what we did. And I felt like we learned a lot doing that. That's fantastic. Um, but that's we're fantastic. certainly not experts on, Jap- on Japan. You know, sure. Going but Japan. but, but uh,
2: Michael, of course, um, you are an expert on these topics. You've probably spent more time thinking about uh, the historical effects uh, of the atomic bombings than anyone else. W- what do these images add to our understanding, Michael?
4: Oh, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, it, it was a, a wonderful opportunity for me to become involved with this project when, uh, when Don approached me and asked me to write a, a long piece uh, for the book. Uh, and, and it really squared very nicely with what I think are, are the directions that current scholarship is taking but in a form that could reach a very broad audience. So first, uh, the scholarly part. Um, The scholarship on the bomb has been dominated really by two great why questions. Why did the United States uh, drop the bomb? Uh, And why did Japan surrender? Uh, We have a pretty good answer, I think, for the first one, um, principally to win the war, but also, Uh, what our colleague uh, Marty Sherwin calls uh, for fringe benefits, not least uh, cowing the Russians, making it very clear that the United States now had an atomic weapon rather ostentatiously slung on its hip uh, with which to negotiate uh, a, a, a longer term peace. Uh, so, so in a sense, uh, the, the 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 why the United States dropped the bomb is answered in a pretty straightforward uh, way with uh, multiple ends in sight. The second question, why did Japan surrender, remains uh, a subject of heated debate among among historians. Uh, some arguing that, of course, uh, the atomic bombs ended the war. Uh, many more suggesting a much more complex uh, picture that involved not least the Russian declaration of war between the bombing of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, which exploded uh, Japanese myths about the possibility of, uh, of a negotiated peace uh, using the Russians uh, with whom they were not yet at war. Um, it's, it's, it, I don't think uh, that we'll ever have a, a, um, a a precise answer that will satisfy everyone. Uh, Of course, there are even more complicated explanations uh, uh, for for that surrender. Um, But but the point being that this book now uh, is very much part of new directions that the scholarship is taking, that, that historians have become interested in. Those why questions, as I said, have dominated the scholarship and they also dominate the perspective. This is uh, the history of the atomic bombs from 25,000 feet up. Uh, this is the history of the mushroom cloud. But there is another history which is little told, and, and that is the history of the of, the, of Paikadon, the flash boom, as the Japanese who experienced those bombs uh, call it. Uh, so now what we're getting in a series of, uh, of very good books, uh, Chad Deal's Resurrecting Nagasaki, which looks at what happens to Nagasaki after the bomb, and Susan Southard's uh, book about uh, about the, the survivors and, and what they do in the wake of the bomb. We're looking, in other words, at a different kind of question. And this question is, what did the bomb mean? Um, uh, uh, some are interested, like me, uh, in, in what they meant to both the users and those against whom the bombs were used. But but there is a, a, a strong line of scholarship with Deal and, and Southard that now begins to look at what it means for the Japanese, for those who were who were uh, 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 attacked by this weapon. Uh, what experiences did they have? It's a story that's little told in the United States. There was the beginning of that story um, back in the late 1940s with John Hersey, uh, a book I'm sure you know, Hiroshima, uh, which focused on Hiroshima and five uh, survivors. Um, now that, um, that, that um, uh, portrait is, is expanding Um, We're returning back to what it meant in human terms, uh, and particularly for those uh, on the ground with this new line of scholarship. This book now takes it a a step further, looking at images, um, very powerful images that are, I should add, all taken by Japanese photographers on site, uh, as, as Don mentioned. And I think that's critically important. Um, very in some cases these were photographers who were amateurs, uh, uh, in other cases professionals. Some of those photographers were there on site when the bombs uh, were dropped. Some came within 24 hours, uh, uh, others within a year, two years. And so we have this extraordinary record now over time of what the bomb meant in human a- a- and structural, and structural ways uh, w- what exactly the bomb meant uh, to the built environment and and very much so the human environment and this book I hope will have a broader reach than than a lot of our scholarly writing I know Jeremy you're you're a historian who believes that uh, we need to reach a much broader audience than we typically reach uh, with with scholarly books and I think this is a book that can can do very, very powerful.
2: And I, and I think it has already with the coverage in the New York Times and elsewhere. And as you said, Michael, so well, the, the, the portraits and the images uh, quite literally that one gets of what it was like to be on the ground when this happened, not to see it from the perspective of 30,000 feet, but from the perspective of those uh, at ground zero in a, in a sense. Um, ben, as a historian, how do you think about these issues? You're not a historian of the atomic bomb per se, uh, you're more a historian of the American experience. How do you how do you see uh, these issues?
0: If we're trying to ascertain what the bomb means, these photographs cease to be ornamental; they become fundamental in how, uh, as primary sources, and how we construct their meaning. Because, to quote Days of Remember, one of the um, I believe it's 1978, a book that came out of Hiroshima, one of the first sort of modern photo books. Uh, and it begins with a photo in the book in, that, that's, that's repeated in Flash of Light of a child looking into the camera, uh, and, and in Days of Remember they say we want you to be able to see what this child saw on this day. And so, when we talk about constructing the meaning of the atomic bomb, the photographs give us an ability to see to, to, to see something of what what the experience of those bombs was like, and, and it's a visceral. Visual onslaught that transcends many of the traditional historiographical questions uh, that we face um, and 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 this leads to a real compelling what if um, because what if these images had not had been part of the historical memory, had been part of the, um, of the American experience over the last 70 years, over the last 75 years? Um, would we think differently? Would our historiographical questions be different if these primary sources had been more readily available? And would our public policy questions be different if these if this sort of visceral, visual experience of the, of the bombings, uh, rather than sort of abstract diplomatic pontificating um, that, w- that we've seen a lot of uh, 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 since, since the end of the Second World War. Would this change our perspective? Would it make us ask different questions?
2: That's a great question, especially as someone myself who likes to study the abstract pontificating of diplomats. Uh, it's a very Im- important question. M- Michael, how, how did the experience, uh, such as it was understood, of the atomic bombings, how did it affect the thinking of Americans, Europeans, Soviet actors, many of the key actors that you and I in particular have spent a lot of time studying from the Cold War? What, what legacies were there for the understanding of its time?
4: Well, at the time, it was heralded uh, as uh, the end to the war, uh, that, that this weapon uh, saved many American lives, and uh, some argued, including Truman, Japanese lives as well. Uh, there were those who pushed back against that interpretation and who very early on suggested uh, that neither bomb was necessary, that a negotiated peace could have been brokered, uh, and that the real target was the Soviet Union. Uh, that's a thread that is picked up by later historians. But at the time, if you look at the, uh, at, at, for example, the public opinion polls uh, in September of 1945, they are overwhelmingly in favor of the use of the weapon, uh, somewhere between 85 and 90 percent. Uh, interestingly, Uh, there is much more skepticism about the use of gas, of poison gas. But the atomic bomb, this is seen as a kind of uh, heroic weapon. Um, Over time, of course, as it became clearer and clearer that there were longer-term effects uh, of these weapons, that this was not simply a bigger bang for the buck, but there were serious problems with radiation and... and, uh, and, and disfigurement, uh, that, that there were some in the United States who felt, well, dare I say it, pangs of guilt. Uh, a group of young women from Hiroshima, who became known as the Hiroshima Maidens, were brought to the United States uh, for cosmetic surgery uh, in, in an act that uh, many Americans viewed as, uh, as, as generous uh, and, and in some ways... Uh, a, a, um, an apology almost. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say a full apology, no. Uh, but, but clearly there was some, some sense of remorse. Uh, and, and ever since, um, the bomb has been weaponized beyond the battlefield. Um, weaponized in propaganda wars. So, uh, so many of these photographs, for example, the photographs taken by um, Yosuke Yamahata uh, of Nagasaki, uh, he entered uh, Nagasaki one day after the bombing uh, uh, of the city uh, and took a series of photographs for the Japanese News and Information Service, which was really an arm uh, of the military, a propaganda arm of the military. And those photos were designed to, uh, to um, uh, build courage among the Japanese people for the go, the, the final battle. Uh, and, and it was hoped by the by the military that these photos would show what the barbarians, um, the the Americans and the allies more generally were, and therefore the need to fight uh, to the to the bitter end. It, it, in the end, by the way, uh, Yamahata hid those photographs. They never got to to the military. But but it, it, the malleability of this kind of um, imagery uh, it is clearly seen in the way in which. Those same photographs, which were initially uh, the idea being used for propaganda uh, to stiffen the will of the Japanese people, were later used um, to create a certain kind of sympathy for the Japanese people. In other words, imagery is malleable, and therefore it's really important, and this is one of the things this book does, I think, to place images in their historical context so that we understand who took them, why they took them, Uh, where they took them. After all, a a photograph is is simply an image. It it doesn't come with um, a caption. Uh, You you have to fill in that blank. Uh, And I think this this book, uh, at least we tried to make this a book that could do that, that set these photographs within their proper historical context.
1: Um, So Don, how come it took us so long for Americans to finally come to terms with the damage that the bombing did and the death that it caused? Why did it take 75 years for such a seminal book like this to be published in the United States? I think
3: that's still an open question. I don't, uh, I'm don't. i not sure that we have come to terms uh, with uh, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think it's a, a, an issue that remains alive. There's so much misunderstanding uh, about uh, why it happened, how it happened, what happened afterward. You can see why Michael, was a, Michael Stoff was a great choice to write the essay for this book, um, because Michael has made some of those points, I think, in his comments. But, uh, you know, in my experience as a historian myself and a teacher, uh I've always been aware of how interested Americans are or have been, I should say, in the story of the making of the bomb, uh, the scientists who were involved, the physics, um, the Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, and on and on and on and on, and you know, who flew the planes and, and so forth and so on. Um, but once those bombay doors opened, the story kind of stops and as far as Americans are concerned. Um, you know, most Americans really uh, look in, in, uh, away from the destruction or just don't think about it. The focus in this country, in my opinion, has been almost entirely, you know, the story of, of the making of the bomb. Uh, that's, and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book when I had the opportunity to get these photographs and to get them published uh, and get someone like Michael to put them in context, uh, because I don't think enough attention has been paid in this country to what happened after those Bombay doors opened. So I don't, you know, I'm still grappling with this whole issue of have, have we come to terms? I don't think that's the case.
2: Ben, what, what do you think about this, particularly, um, as, as I know you do in your own work, thinking about the long trajectory? What, what were some of the, the positive lessons that Americans took from uh, 1945? And what were some of the lacunas, some of the holes that you're hoping that these images and a return to this moment will help us to
0: fill? I think I would say that there really is a sort of a history of absence with these images um that that is more impactful than where they do show up because they show up so sporadically uh over the over the following 75 years and, and american perceptions of um are, of nuclear war um are 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 found elsewhere are found in in some of the things michael spoke of uh, the end of the war coming swiftly and heroically rather than uh nastily. um And and inconveniently, I and we see a very different history um, in Japanese collective memory, where you have this sort of initial memory boom in the early 1950s, when American censorship leaves with the American military occupation, and very quickly museums uh, spring up, photo books are published, and there's this there's this focus in Japanese collective memory on the end of World War Two as in human suffering, rather than in um, environmental destruction, you get the uh, photographer's view rather than the the, the, door, the view from the Bombay doors, uh, as as Don mentioned. Um, but I, I think in general, it's it's a very tough thing to create a cartography of a perception over a long period of time, and and this speaks Zachary to. To some of the themes of your poem, that it's very hard to grasp something that you've never experienced. And and, and thankfully, uh, very few people have, uh, globally speaking, um, you think of the billions of people that have existed and currently exist. Uh, few people have experienced a nuclear war. And that's one of the issues today, I think, where part of the power of this book comes in, is that public memory of nuclear war is fading at a time when tensions between nuclear powers is on the rise. And I think these photographs give us vital primary source information into understanding what happens when nuclear weapons are used by human beings against one another. And so we're able to grasp something we haven't experienced in the hope that we won't have to experience it in order to grasp it. Right,
2: that's that's very well said. It, it, it's, it's similar to many other uh, apocalyptic experiences. And in in some ways uh, we're living through a pandemic now that uh, is not dissimilar from what many lived through in the early 20th century, but we couldn't imagine it again because we had been so far removed from it. And in, in some ways, it seems to me your book is about, and you're, the lesson you're trying to teach is to remember what these experiences were, so we don't forget the measures we need to take to prevent them from occurring again. Uh, Michael, do you, do you see a fruitful dialogue developing around these issues? I know you you pay attention uh, as, as I do, and as other historians do, as Don does as well to, the resonances of this history today. Are you optimistic about us learning further lessons from this, or are you concerned? And how do you think about that?
4: I'm a historian, as you know, Jeremy, and if there's one thing historians know is is that there's nothing so bad that it can't happen. Uh, And and I, I, I like to believe as well that there's nothing so good that it can't happen. So so I, I'm of two minds, as always, like uh, like Harry Truman about about economists. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm of two minds uh, of it. On the one hand, um, the atomic bomb is a, going back to the question that was asked earlier, the atomic bomb is a raw nerve for so many Americans because it, it, it in some ways it violates our sense of national identity, uh, of who we are as a people. We, we believe and there's there's evidence of this that we are a, a generous uh, and kind uh, uh, um, and humane people, um, but there's also evidence that we are susceptible to doing terrible things, and and, and I think this particular episode, one of the most controversial in in, in history, is one in which. The, the outcome is questionable when you look at it from the ground up. When you look at it from the ground down, as Don said, from the Bombay doors, from the perspective of the mushroom cloud, well, war ends amid terrible destruction, um, but war is destructive. It's just like John Hersey said, the, the first postulate of the theorem of war is death. Uh, and, and certainly there's that, but when you see the degree of suffering that people go through in war um, that that changes one's perspective, and, and my hope is that we'll be able to have a fruitful dialogue about the the meaning of the atomic bomb for not just uh, the United States and not just for Japan, but for the rest of the world as well. Uh, and, and, and look, 1945 was was a perhaps one of the most important years in, in world history, because it was the year in which two great secrets now became public with, with profound implications. The first secret, of course, was the Holocaust, mm-hmm. the actual discovery of, of the camps, which comes in the spring of 1945. Uh, people knew they existed, but now here was the hard evidence. And oh, by the way, here were the photographs as well. And, and, and the second um, was the, uh, the detonation of the atomic bomb. Uh, and so now, for the first time in human history, uh, humanity had the capacity to destroy itself utterly. And, and that's what the bomb showed. Uh, and, and what the Holocaust showed was that humanity has the depravity to do it. And, and, and th- those two lessons from the war worry me still. Uh, as as I watch um, uh, the world go up in relatively small flames here and there, um, who knows right. what this may lead? It, it, it's it's a different ballgame. Right. And, uh, it, and,
2: and uh, to, to come back to your profound point about history moving in two directions at once, uh, you can see elements of destruction in our world today. But Nineteen forty-five reminds us that destruction can also be followed by extraordinary renewal as well. Maybe that's one of the points. Uh, Don, I want to close with you. You you direct uh, a public history center. Um, what what is the lesson you want citizens to take away from this project?
3: Well, it's very simple. Uh, a simple answer, but it's a, maybe a complex thing to grasp. But and that is that really. Nuclear war is real. It's not just something that's in the movies. Uh, and it really has happened. Uh, it happened in 1945, 75 years ago. And we hope that these photographs will vividly demonstrate uh, what a relatively small nuclear weapon. Uh, and I think that's important to emphasize. That not, does not take away one bit, and I certainly don't mean for it to, from the horror of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but we have gone on to to weapons that are so far beyond what we dropped on those two cities. And so, I'd like for particularly young people to see these photographs, as horrible as they are, and go, "Oh my God! You know, this is what happens when you get into a nuclear war." Uh, that's if, if if we can if we can educate just. A small group of people about about that, I feel like we've done a good job.
2: I think that's such an important uh, lesson and such an important historical insight. Zachary, is, is this a meaningful um, historical marker for your generation? Do young citizens like yourself who are concerned about political change, looking toward our elections, looking toward a new future, is this an important issue for you? I think it is. And I think
1: we're in a very, very important and a very volatile moment in our collective memory of World War Two, because we're at this point where the last people who really uh felt the destruction firsthand are dying. But so are those who w- were were most committed to the heroism of the United States during World War Two. And the issue, and, and the real question of the 21st century in regards to how we remember World War II is going to be do we remember it as the movies depicted as this, this heroic time, or do we remember it as a very complex period where the United States did many great things, but it also did many bad things?
2: Well, I think that mixed legacy is a legacy we all have to grapple with as we think about our own society today and and how we move forward. Back to what Michael said, uh, these these complex issues involve often contradictory phenomena so important for us to be uh, conscious of those. I, I want to thank uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, Don, Ben, Michael, for joining us, uh, for your important work on this project, and also for your willingness to take a difficult, complex, controversial issue like this, and really uh, open discussion around it in such an effective and uh, an emotional way. Uh, thank you for joining us
3: today. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate thank it you. very much. My pleasure.
2: And I wanna thank Zachary for his poem, of course, and I wanna encourage all of our uh, listeners to go out and uh, read this important book. It is available in all bookstores. Uh, You can find it uh, wherever you find good books. Uh, It is called Flash of Light, Wall of Fire, Japanese Photographs Documenting the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we will link uh, the New York Times article about the book, which includes some of the sample photos to this. Thank you to our audience, as always, for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy.
1: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.